While visiting Texas, I discovered where Bonnie and Clyde are buried. When you say those two first names together, everyone knows who you mean. The most notorious outlaw lovers in the 1930s that were on a spree of fast cars, holdups, bank robberies, and death. Besides this, what do we really know about these two? When Bonnie Parker was asked by her mother to leave Clyde Barrow and surrender, she told her mother that Clyde was inevitably going to die, and she intended to die with him, which she did. They died together in a hail of bullets that ended their murderous crime spree. But were they buried together? Where are their graves? I found what lies beneath as I tracked down Bonnie and Clyde and their story. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. It's Lachelle. I'm here today with my partner in crime, my daughter Taylor. Hey, (laughs) y'all. Thanks, Dave, for being with me today. Of course, I'm so excited. We've been working on this for a long time, and I'm ready to get it going. Yes, same. So, Taylor is not only my partner in crime in telling this story, she is my partner in crime in all the behind the scenes stuff. Tell them about that. I've just been working on the website and I am also the editor of this fine podcast and it's been a blast. I've been learning all kinds of new things that I never thought I would learn how to do. Like we were talking about earlier, I've been learning how to photoshop and build a website and it's been it's been pretty crazy, but I've been loving every minute of it. It's been fun. You are the best. I try. So when I recently came to visit you in Texas, being the crazy taphophile that I am, I looked up nearby cemeteries and graves. And one of the first ones that came up were Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. I knew just about as much as most people do about the duo but I was intrigued and dove into research mode. So if you want to see photos of Clyde and Bonnie, I have Clyde's wanted poster and their graves and all our sources for the show, you can go to stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. So Taylor, what did you know about Bonnie and Clyde? The only thing that I ever really remember about them is everyone talks about their love story and I've never understood that but I do know that and then how they died because it was such a crazy blaze of glory kind of way to die and so those are the the main things that I know I don't know much about them as people or exactly what they did I knew they were bank robbers and I think that's that's pretty much it I don't know much else besides that yes so i'm excited to learn more because i don't know hardly anything yeah i was pretty much at the same place um just kind of knew a few things movies cartoons that kind of thing what i discovered was that they both came from very poor circumstances clyde's father was a tenant cotton farmer and after the first world war the cotton prices hit rock bottom Farmers couldn't pay their rent, and cottonseed costs more than the resulting crop could even be sold for. And so in the next several years, between the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl conditions, it drove many farmers and their families to the closest big city, and which the one we're talking about today is Dallas, Texas. But there were not nearly enough low-level entry jobs for all the farmers who came into Dallas. Clyde Barrow's family arrived in an archaic wagon drawn by a horse, and they found that the only place to park and try to eke out a place to live was in West Dallas. 
and he was nicknamed the Devil's Back Porch. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like a place you want to take up? You know? Oh yeah, I want to live in the Devil's Back Porch. That sounds like the place for me. <laughs> it was an area outside of the beautiful city of Dallas in a floodplain. So apparently, nobody else wanted to, you know, put houses in there, and so it it was open is that why it's the devil's back porch i i guess is i guess the front porch is the pretty side of dallas oh, okay. and the back porch i guess is not even dallas's back porch but it's the devil's back porch yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so as the influx of people grew it became a campground community or tent city if you will of poor families and so Clyde's family slept under their wagon at night. And then after a time, they were able to get a tent. And then they started to build a tiny little shed like shack. And then they kept adding onto it over the years to where eventually they ended up with a little service station, a little gas station. And Clyde's father used to kind of make illegal whiskey you know in the back and and sell that kind of out of there too so their dad henry he would take the horse and go into dallas every day and scavenge metal from people's trash and then he would sell it for money sounds like a rough way to make a living they never had much they lived hand to mouth with hundreds of other there in west dallas Clyde was enamored by the big city. There were theaters with dozens of shows playing. Fair Park had carnival rides, picture-taking booths, and a real ice skating rink. Skyscrapers, stores with merchandise of every kind. Music stores with so many instruments. Clyde spent hours looking at guitars through the glass window. I could see several members of our family doing something like that. Oh yeah, if not all of them. Exactly. He loved playing music and he was always good at picking up an instrument and learning it fast. He was used to living in rough circumstances, but he wanted more. Clyde, or Bud as his family was fond of calling him, quit school around the age of 16 and got a job that gave him a dollar a day. He didn't like answering to bosses. He always wanted to be the one doing the bossing. He worked hard, but it was so hard to make any headway when you make $1 a day. He worked a series of dull, low-paying jobs. He would go back to the campground at the end of a long day and eat a meager meal with his family. They were all working and doing their best to eke out a living in the midst of the Great Depression. His parents were beyond exhausted and they were getting nowhere fast. Their lives was a real life grapes of wrath. Clyde had friends there in the campground and saw they were getting nice things and good food by breaking the law. He decided to keep working at the factory and to supplement their income with illegal activity. Wow, they had it rough. I cannot imagine only working all that time and only getting paid a dollar. It was a dollar a day or a dollar an hour? A dollar a day. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine yeah. getting one dollar after a hard day's work. So what did they end up doing for illegal activity then? What did he get involved in? So stealing chickens was the easiest at first. They were in most of the Dallas backyards and pretty easy to steal. And if you couldn't sell it, you could feed your family with it. Good point. <laughs> They've got it down to science, don't they? <laughs> Clyde was picked up by the police for the first time for this crime. He got yelled at by the police and his parents had to come pick him up, but this didn't stop Clyde. He wanted to impress the ladies, and to do this, you needed to wear nice clothes and be able to buy them nice things. He needed to get ahead in life. The only way he could see to do this was to steal. His first big offense against the law wasn't even intended. He rented a car to go see a girl that he was trying to win back after breaking up with. He had taken the car out of town, which wasn't in the rental contract, and then he was late getting it back, so the rental car company had him arrested. 
Now, Clyde had an official police record. He was next arrested with his brother Buck when the two of them tried to unload some turkeys that had been stolen. The police were starting to see too much of these two, and they started to refer to Buck and Clyde as the Barrow Boys. A new problem arose now that the police had them in their sights. Anytime there was robbery, they would just go pick up the Barrow Boys. Clyde would be at work, and you can just imagine how his bosses felt about that, and they would take him downtown to be questioned. Most of these times, he was even innocent of any wrongdoing, but because of his earlier arrests, he was an easy go-to. He was let go from his job because of this, and when he would get another job, the same thing would happen there, and he would be let go of that one. Pretty soon, he just gave up and made crime his livelihood. Stealing cars was always in the mix from the beginning to the end. Cars were plentiful and easy to steal in those days. He loved to drive and drive fast. It makes me kind of sad because it was like, yeah, they did some illegal things, but it was to, first of all, to like survive. Right. And then he tries to do the right thing and the cops are just like, nope, it's definitely those borrow boys when maybe mm-hmm. they didn't even yeah. do it. So then he just, finally he was just like, fine. If you guys want me to be a criminal, then I will be a criminal. It's kind of sad. I think so too. That's kind of how I saw it and kind of why I wanted to go back into their past because it really made sense to me as to how this path came about. Not that it was right and not that there was no other ways he could have lived, but yeah, you can kind of see how it happened. Mm-hmm. Times were really hard right then and you also see that there was a lot of big crime going on in this time in history. Yeah, people were trying to survive and trying to keep their families fed and safe. Yeah. Sometimes they just didn't have any other option, which is so sad to think about. Yeah, really hard time in the nation's history. Definitely. The cocky barrel boys bragged to their little brother, LC, that you never break the law until you are caught. Well, they did, and they were. Caught with a car they had just stolen, and with them loading a small safe they had also stolen into it. They were spotted by the cops and decided to make a run for it. They jumped and took off with Clyde driving. Clyde always was the driver. When he took a turn too fast and they crashed the car into a curb, they took off on foot. The cops started shooting, and Buck was hit with flesh wounds in both legs. As he yelled and fell to the ground in pain, Clyde kept going. He hid out until the cops stopped looking for him and hitchhiked home. All the cockiness was out of Clyde by the time he got home to West Dallas. He was thinking that Buck had been killed. So he was relieved to find out that he was not too badly wounded, but there was plenty of evidence of their robbery and Buck was sentenced to four years in prison. Buck sent a letter to his parents from prison saying, God gives me one more chance, I shall try to the best that is in me to lead a life worthwhile in the future and be a man that the people will respect and my relatives will honor. I know the heart aches and sorrow that my crookedness has did to you and father. Henry and Kumi Barrow hoped that the experience would scare Clyde straight enough before he ended up in prison. But he never made such promises to his parents. And he knew that he was wanted in plenty of towns around Dallas for burglary and car theft. He was beginning to feel a crushing weight of fear and a sense of being powerless. And Clyde hated that feeling. He was constantly looking over his shoulder. He soon went with a friend over to a house where he first met Bonnie Parker. She was 19 years old and only stood 4 feet 11 inches tall. Tay, that's taller than you. What? Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I am 5'3". Thank you very much. I'm barely taller than she is, but I can still say that I am. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> but I sure as heck don't weigh 100 pounds, so... <laughs> oh, yeah. She weighed less than 100 pounds, so you can just imagine this little, tiny, tiny framed gal. Short, just itty-bitty. Yeah, she was tiny. Tiny. Goodness. And to Clyde, who is only 5'6", which is how tall I am. Yeah. And he was scrawny himself. 
She was perfect. And they hit it off big right away. Aww. Bonnie was feeling pretty down about life right about then. She had big dreams for herself. She wanted to be an actress on Broadway or in movies or a renowned poetry writer. Bonnie was always writing poetry and as a small girl, she would always perform in plays, singing in church. She loved the attention and she was upset that she was still stuck in a West Dallas slum, still legally married to an inmate in prison for robbery. After he got out, she told him they were through and they never saw each other again, but she never divorced him. She had said that just wouldn't be right to kick a man while he was down. And she wore his wedding band until her dying day. Weird. <laughs> I know. <That's... laughs> I, I can't imagine doing that. I don't want to be with you, but I'll wear your ring every day. <laughs> don't want to kick I you die. while you're down, dude. I'll wear your ring. Yeah. <laughs> weird whatever she's obviously got a type so (laughs) that's what i was gonna say (laughs) bonnie had lost her job and couldn't find another the manager at the cafe she worked at told her mother that she was in danger of losing her job because she kept giving food away to the homeless who couldn't pay for their meals even though she was warned she would lose her job she continued to feed the poor she didn't ever stop bonnie had a soft caring heart She was never fired though. She lost her job due to the great stock market crash. Many businesses closed when their clients lost everything and couldn't afford to go out anymore. Bonnie had an unshakable self-esteem though. People who knew them said that the whole family always acted like they were better than others. Even though her father had died when she was tiny and had only been a brick mason, her mother did the best she could and Bonnie did what she had to do She knew that she was going to be something big someday, something special with her name and lights. Bonnie had written in her journal, why don't something happen? She still wanted the fairytale life in movies with the grand love affairs, exciting adventures, and beautiful clothes. I don't blame her. I'd I'd love to have fairytale life (laughs) with beautiful clothes all the time and exciting adventures. Sounds pretty good, right? But I'm sure that was a way that she could just escape from all of the hard stuff they were dealing with in their lives. Tell yourself you are destined for greatness. Yeah. The two met and seemed to be inseparable afterwards. It just clicked between them. Bonnie's mother described Clyde as a likable boy with his dark wavy hair, dancing brown eyes, and a dimple that popped out every now and then when he smiled. Even though Bonnie had been crazy at first about her husband, Roy, her mom thought that she never worshipped him as she did Clyde. Just a week or two later, Clyde was at Bonnie's home when Dallas police arrested him. Bonnie went into hysterics, putting all that Broadway acting into it, and pounded her hands on the walls and begged officers not to arrest him. She fell sobbing to the ground. Her mother then tells her that it might be a good idea to stop falling in love with felons. (laughs) Goals. Goals. You think that would be a given. Maybe you should stop falling in love with felons. But what what do I know? Uh, Go, mama. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. It's just a thought, baby. But I'm just wondering if you might want to. Stop hanging out with Bella. Yeah. <laughs> what a what a good mom to say it just like that too. Maybe <laughs> you should think about not falling in love with felons anymore. Just <laughs> as an idea. <laughs> she was done with her first husband, Roy, but Clyde was different. He needed her. He may have made a few mistakes, but she had the age-old thoughts of I can save him with my love. So Bonnie settled into what may become the most satisfying role of her life. If she only knew. Clyde was put in jail this time. And after that, he was wanted in other jurisdictions. So he was going to be passed back and forth to other cities and towns and was going to be in prison for a while. 
Bonnie would go to see him in jail, but after he told her the news that he'd be transferred for auto theft to another town, she wrote him a letter. Quote, I was so blue and mad and discouraged, I just had to cry. I had Maybelline on my eyes, and it began to stream down my face, and I had to stop on Lamar Street. I laid my head on the steering wheel and sure did boo-hoo. <laughs> A couple of city policemen came up and wanted to know my trouble. I imagine I sure looked funny with Maybelline streaming down my face, end quote. Can't you just see her there with the mascara going down? And I thought it was interesting, too, that she kept calling it Maybelline. Like Nowadays, we all call it mascara. We don't call it, you know, Maybelline to us is like, oh, that's kind of one of the... That's a brand. Make a brand, but I guess... Yeah. I don't know. So if it was just the brand she used and that's what she called it or... If that was a thing back then. Yeah. Interesting. She then told Clyde that she was going to be the very one to show him that the outside world is a swell place and that they were young and should be happy like other boys and girls instead of being like they were. While Clyde was in jail in Waco, his brother Buck escaped from Huntsville Prison. He came right home to the West Dallas home, popped his head in the door and laughed. Soon, he went to hide out in Oklahoma with his girlfriend, Blanche, and they married not too soon after. Even though Clyde had only two years' time to serve, it sounded like forever to him, and Clyde hatched up a plan to have Bonnie smuggle a gun into the jail so he could escape. It shows how she was already willing to give up everything for Clyde when she did what he asked and smuggled a gun in by putting it under waistband of her skirt and sliding it under the table to him in the visiting room. I mean, nowadays, that wouldn't even be possible. There's no way that you could do that. Yeah, just put it in my waistband and walk on in. Yeah, that was really surprising to me. And as I read the books and articles about these two, I was really surprised at how many times people did this stuff. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, there were all these shows and cartoons that showed people taking things into the people in jail, like a steel file and a cake, uh -huh. you know, or a shovel or a gun and like some flowers Yeah. or, you know, something like that where they would just pull out this huge thing out of this little cake or something. And I just thought, well, that's so silly. Like, that's ridiculous. But there were several times that Clyde snuck a file into a friend in a magazine binding or, you know, something like that. So I was just so shocked that that stuff really happened. And it actually worked. Like one time the person actually filed through the bars with the file that he brought. <laughs> and I don't think I don't think it escaped for long, but they were actually able to do it anyway. So Crazy. It's, it's a real thing. It's just not a funny cartoon thing. Hmm. I didn't ever realize that. I knew that in that time there was plenty of prison escapes, but I had no idea that somebody actually used a file to file at the bars. That's hilarious. So Clyde was able, with a couple of other inmates, to use the handgun as intimidation to get out of the jail. They stole a car, surprise, and started driving. And then they kept switching stolen cars so that by the time the police knew of one car, they'd already be in a different car. Newspaper headlines read, Trio leaves trail of stolen cars and then tells the names and then the disclaimer that they would be caught because, quote, they haven't the brains to stay free. It's the dumbbell in them that brings them back, end quote. Bonnie read the paper and was relieved that her boyfriend was still okay because she hadn't heard a word from him while he was out on the run. They were eventually caught, and the Waco Times-Herald headlines read, Baby Thugs Captured. A sub-headline read, Barrow, the youngest of the trio, makes most spectacular attempt to escape capture. In the fall of 1930, Clyde was now back in jail but this time in a maximum security wing. And even worse, he was soon assigned to Easton Prison Farm, known as the filthiest hellhole in the entire corrupt Texas criminal justice system. He was barely 18 years old. Easton Prison was literally hell on earth. 
the easiest way to quickly describe the place was that all the terrible things you can possibly imagine happened here. Poor conditions, not enough food, being forced to work 10-hour days out on the farm, out in the heat. Clyde was small and slim, like we talked about before. He only weighed around 127 pounds. That's like my left leg. (laughs) (laughs) So he didn't have any extra weight to live off of. His friends there were afraid he wouldn't even survive. Clyde had met a friend that would be an on and off constant from then on, Ralph Fultz. And the two of them dreamed of coming back someday and executing a raid on Easton Prison. Inmates there regularly received severe beatings for infractions with a leather whip-like belt, and they called this the bat. And the very worst of all of it for Clyde was that he was targeted by an inmate, one with 99 years to serve out without parole, so he had no incentives for holding back. His name was Ed Crowder, and he was a monster, a hulking brute over six feet, and was named a building tender, which basically means that he was an inmate that none of the others would mess with in the hall, and they all slept together in bunks in rows kind of like a barracks, and he was charged with keeping the other inmates in line by pretty much any means. So when skinny young Clyde was placed in his dorm, it was all over for Clyde. He was routinely raped by Crowder for more than a year. His tormentor could do as he pleased, and there was nothing Clyde could do to stop him. He terrorized him, and if he screamed, if he would fight, he would beat him into submission. He took terrible beatings. And all of this was probably done in the full view of all the other inmates. They all, you know, slept right there. This was the ultimate degradation. Clyde had become friendly with another dorm tender, and the man, Scully, encouraged him when Clyde said that he was going to murder Ed Crowder. The two concocted a plan, and on October 29, 1931, He concealed a piece of lead pipe in his pants leg as he came in from the farm. That night, when all was quiet, Clyde made sure he was heard heading into the bathroom. And of course, Crowder took the bait and followed him in, thinking he was going to attack Clyde. But when he got within reach, Clyde hit him in the head with all that he had with his pipe and fractured his skull, killing him instantly. Then... Scully, after giving himself a shallow wound with a homemade shiv, jumped in and started stabbing Crowder. So when guards heard all the shouting, they rushed in and assumed that Crowder and Scully had been in a knife fight and that Crowder had been killed. Scully confessed to the killing. The first thought that comes to mind is I don't necessarily blame Clyde. Like, he was in such a bad place i don't necessarily blame him i mean it's not right i'm not saying it's right at all right of course but if someone had repeatedly like and viciously raped you and beat you for over a year you can see having that kind of i would lose it just like i'm sure he did which is why he came up with this plan i think it's very interesting that scally confessed to it and was willing to help him when he didn't do anything. Right. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. So why why would he do that? Well, Scally was already in prison for life. And he had a deep hatred for Crowder. And so him taking the rap for Clyde, I guess, appealed to him. Like, he's like, I'm in here anyway. Yeah, might as well. I've got nothing better to do. Yeah. So he totally took the rap for Clyde and no one ever knew that anyone else had anything to do with it. That's very interesting. Even though Ed Crowder was gone, Clyde was still determined to get out of there. He was hearing less and less from Bonnie and he was nervous. He asked his mother to try and get him a pardon, which I guess in those days of very full prisons it actually worked now and then so i don't know maybe when it wasn't a violent crime or something yeah that's interesting 
But so he got he got his mom to work on that. But in the meantime, he decided to take matters into his own hands and air quotes accidentally cut off two of his toes with an axe while working outside. Oh my. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine quote unquote accidentally cutting off my toes. Yeah, I don't I don't think I would have the guts to go th- through with that but maybe after everything he'd been through he was like eh what's a couple toes get me out of here that what's two toes and so he knew from experience that if you just partially cut off a toe or a finger you would just be sent back out to work to be made an example of so I guess it wasn't exactly a very original idea it must have been tried many times so he was like I have to succeed I must do a good job so He cut off his big left toe and part of the next toe, and this would affect his balance, and he walked with a limp the rest of his life. And the worst part of it is, if that's not all bad enough, his mother came through with begging for his parole, and he was paroled by the governor just a few days later. Oh my gosh. If only he had waited... Yes, if he only had waited, he could have his toe. (laughs) Yeah. Oh. So just a few days later, he was released, and he had spent 17 months in Eastham Prison Farm. He swore to his mother that he would die before he let the laws send him back there again. Clyde just missed seeing his brother Buck by two months. Buck had decided to give himself up to the law and finished serving out his prison sentence. And even though Clyde tried to fly street for a while after prison, employment in 1931 was at an all-time low. So Clyde, Ralph Fultz, his friend that was in the prison with him, he'd also been paroled. And another guy named Raymond Hamilton decided to form a gang and try to pull off some robberies and make some big money. Clyde borrows a gun of his brother Bucks from Blanche, who is living with the family at their service station there in West Dallas. Blanche warns him not to lose it or Buck would skin him alive. Wouldn't you know it, he lost the gun. Sometimes the gang would have the worst luck. There would be more guards than they thought, the safe would be empty, They were out to do these really big crimes and take lots of dough, but it was almost ridiculous how much bad luck they had. Bonnie would be joining them soon, and they went about driving for long distances to try to rob a bank. None of them had ever attempted this kind of job. They finally complete a robbery and take $33,000. Which in that time was a ton of money. Big money. They spent most of it buying guns, ammo, and bulletproof vests from a pawnbroker. Well, most of the guns, when they tried them out, didn't even shoot. And the supposed bulletproof vest, when they put one against a tree and shot at it, was just basically a jacket. Not so much bulletproof. (laughs) Ah, yeah. Not such a good idea. Yeah. So now they needed more money to buy more guns, and so they had to rob more banks. So it goes, their stolen car would break down, and then they'd walk back into a town to steal another one. And then when some police officers stopped to ask what they were up to, Clyde pulled a forty-five on two cops and one sheriff and took them hostage. So they jammed Clyde and Fultz and the three officers in one of the cars. And as they drive, they begin to apologize to the men for having to take them hostage. (laughs) So they released them about eight miles out of town. Fultz, keeping one of their guns, said, we'll take good care of this. Their plan was to drive toward the Oklahoma border. But then the car ran out of gas. (laughs) Not very good planning there. Uh, It just seems like never. Never. They never planned. So along comes a rural mail carrier in his car, and they just jump up on his running boards, point guns in his face, and take him and his car hostage, too. (laughs) Oh, geez. 
Then when they get to the state border, there was a toll to pay over the Red River and Clyde didn't stop. He just drove crashing through a chain barrier and the bridge guards start to shoot at the car. And then a little while later, they hear an all points bulletin on the radio for their lookout. And so they stop and let the guy out. He asks for his mailbag, which they give him, and then asks them if when they're done with his car if they will please burn it rather than abandon it. If it was destroyed, the government would be obligated to buy him a new one. A day later, the smoldering remains of his car were found nearby. <laughs> the mailman, the mailman's just like, hey, while we're at this, can you just like <laughs> do me this one little favor and just like torch my car, please, so I can get a new can one? <laughs> what? Do a guy a solid and burn my car. (laughs) Way to take advantage of the situation, mailman. Way to read the room and know that you need something. And they listened. They said, you know what? Let's do this guy a solid and just torch his car for him. Oh, that's funny. That's great. Bonnie began tagging along on this raid and that and saw Clyde when he came into town. So she was kind of, you know, part-time in it there for a while. And then soon she told her mama that she was getting a full-time job in Houston selling cosmetics. But really what she was going to do was start joining the gang full-time. She loved being involved and part of the gang. The next trip was to Tyler, Texas to steal (laughs) several cars. That's kind of near you. Mm Mm-hmm. The gang had decided to try and do their raid on the Eastham prison. Remember how Fultz and Clyde were like, someday we're going to get that Eastham prison and we're going to bust it open. So they decided that they were going to start working towards that. And that's why they're trying to get so many guns and ammo. So they're like, okay, we're going to need lots of transportation. We're going to at least need two big cars to get their friends safely you know out after they broke into the prison mm-hmm. one of the guys Clyde wanted to get out was the guy Scally who had taken the rap for Clyde and he felt that he owed him that makes sense so Bonnie Clyde and Fultz went on this raid after stealing a Chrysler and a Buick they tried to rob a hardware store for guns they were seen by a night watchman downtown and he and they exchanged fire and they all took off in the cars. Long story short, there were all kinds of people chasing them in cars and problems with roads. So they got off on some old country roads with those big new cars. They just took off at high speeds and was really outrunning everybody until it began to rain. All these back roads were made of dirt. Wah, wah. <laughs> it had been raining quite a bit recently and so before long the roads were big gooey sloppy slippery messes and the weight of those big cars sunk them so deep in the sludge that no matter what the three of them did they couldn't get the cars unstuck Mm. they knew they were being pursued so they took off across the fields they were drenched to the skin and they arrived at this farmhouse at 1 a.m. and banged on the door and told the farmer they needed his car. He's like, I don't have a car, but I have these two mules. (laughs) Hey. All right. So without much of a choice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that works. (laughs) They climbed onto one mule and Fultz got on the other one just in time for it to buck him off into the mud. (laughs) They were riding bareback upon the spindly spines of the old mules And all I can think of is that Bonnie had to have been in complete misery. (laughs) You know, freezing, Uh soaking wet, riding on this. She was probably hungry, all of that. And was just probably wondering what happened to her big grand adventure life that she was looking forward to. Yeah, listen, man, I wanted to be carried off on a white horse and treated like a princess (laughs) not an old mule and here i am on an old mule in the mud freezing hungry and i'm stuck with you so it doesn't seem like it's a big grand adventure (laughs) i guess in a way it was but not the way she thought it was going to be yeah surprising that she kept doing all this because nothing really changed that much yeah so when they neared the town of kemp 
Around dawn, they spotted a car parked in a driveway and left the mules there and hotwired the car and took off only to have the car run out of gas a mile down the road. Just their luck. Yeah. The three hid in the brush and soon here came the pursuers and they were spotted by cops and they had to try and flee on foot. Um, while they were fleeing, shots were exchanged and Fultz was shot. As they were about to get caught, he told Bonnie he would abandon them so that he could stay free to save them and for her to surrender. And so he left Bonnie there with her wounded partner, Fultz. Fultz convinced Bonnie to tell the police that she'd been kidnapped and forced to flee with the men as prisoners. Well, they did it enough to other people, so why wouldn't they have believed yeah. it about Bonnie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good plan. Over the next few days, everything that the Barrow Gang tried fell apart as they worked out a plan to free Bonnie and Fultz. She ended up being in jail for about six weeks, and she was treated well there. Bonnie and Clyde's families would take her things, clothes, snacks, no, just little things. She mm-hmm. wrote several very interesting poems while in jail. The longest and most famous is named Suicide Sal. It's about a naive girl from Wyoming, Sal, who is lured into a life of crime by her lover. And during a robbery attempt, her love, Jack, flees while Sal is arrested and sentenced for five to 50 years. Jack sends word that he will break her out. When Jack never shows up to break her out, she starts to worry about what he is doing. And then she gets paroled and goes out and finds that he's with another lady. And so Sal ends up committing suicide. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. That is awful. I'm sure that's what it's obviously about her and what she felt inside, but couldn't exactly say. And a lot of her poems were like that. In the meantime, Clyde, with two guys, hold up a store, and it doesn't go well. The owner, 60-year-old John Boucher, is shot. Even though Clyde is outside driving the getaway car and has nothing to do with the shooting, he was picked out in photos by the man's wife as one of three men that had been in the store the night before. The men that had robbed their store and murdered her husband poor lady actually only got one of the identities right, and that was Clyde. Cops all over Texas were looking for him, and now he was wanted not only for theft, but murder. Bonnie was released from jail and went right back to Clyde, where she was kind of the mascot for the gang, always the guys and Bonnie. So there are so many stories and details of the next few years that it's just dizzying. I'll tell you a few, but let's just begin it by saying that basically they drove their stolen cars over about six states. They would add a guy to the gang and then pretty soon, you know, a few guys would go. Someone would get shot and that would be it. Their luck was usually poor and they weren't quite the criminal masterminds that the public thought they were. (laughs) They would hold up a small grocery store and only get about 20 bucks And then they would be spotted by police, go on to chase, have to get away, steal a new car. They hardly had any money for food or lodging. Many times they would just sleep in their car or out in the open in the country. Sometimes they would have luck and could steal a lot of guns and ammo and some cash. And they would buy nice clothes and stay at a hotel and rest up for a few days. The public thought of them as modern-day Robin Hoods. I guess that's because they would steal and then help out their families with the money. And all they're driving around, they always circled back to home. They had ways of signaling that they would meet out on deserted roads and see their parents and siblings. There was definitely a love between them and their families. They always came back to Texas and they brought food, money, gifts, anything that they could bring to their families to help them out during that hard time. And sometimes they would even stay at their old, old homes for a few days at a time, especially Bonnie. Wow. And the police never thought, hey, maybe we should look at their family and just see if they go back there. (laughs) That's what I keep thinking. I know. I think they got wise 
the longer it went, but the people in the neighborhood were very loyal. Mm. And so they never, you know, ratted him out or would help police if they asked anything about him. So I think that that helped a lot. There's a tight-knit um, community around them. Mm-hmm. Got it. The other thing is that sometimes they would just stop out somewhere, some little country house or farmhouse, and would just ask if they could stay there. Which sounds completely ludicrous to us nowadays that you could actually just stop at someone's house and be like, hey, <laughs> we stay the night? Yeah, that'd be weird. But back then, like, people were on such hard times, they would either invite them in or they would say, yeah, sleep in the barn. That's fine. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they would give people money for letting them stay there. And so I think that that helped sweeten the deal. Yeah. Because everybody needed money at those times. And a lot of those families told stories about really liking the both of them and having good conversations with them and Bonnie playing with the kids. Mm. They would give the kids rides on the running boards of their car around the yard and, and things like that. So they are like Robin Hood in that sense where they're nice and they help them out in some ways. Maybe not in the most amazing way possible, but can see why people thought they were modern day Robin Hoods just because they right. were they were helping in a way. Yeah. So they just somehow got that reputation for it. The other thing they had the reputation for was always dressing really nice and having nice things. And of course, they always had nice cars. So that was one of the important things to them is when they had money, they would go buy these really nice clothes. And so they always looked really well turned out. They hardly ever had money for food or lodging. And many nights, they would sleep in their car or out in the open in the country. They were bathing in streams, using bushes as bathrooms, and Bonnie hated it. There were bugs, she was scared of snakes, aren't we all? And Bonnie was terrified of lightning and thunder. Apparently she would scream and cry for hours during a thunderstorm. Their usual dinner fare was a can of cold Vienna sausages, crackers, and like a can of beans. And that would be cold because they wouldn't even light a fire for fear of being spotted. This was not the high life that Bonnie had envisioned. Bonnie also drank quite a bit, and she was drunk a lot of the time. Clyde didn't drink so much so that he could be alert and be on watch for, you know, police and stuff. And then Clyde and Bonnie could also really fight. Screaming matches that would sometimes become abusive. And apparently they would both go swinging at each other. And Clyde would knock Bonnie across the room and she would come right back for more. And it's crazy, but they would always quickly make up and be right back to their loving ways. That is weird. Because everyone talks about their amazing love story and how they loved each other so much. But really it was not a good relationship obviously yeah if they're screaming at each other and hitting each other it was definitely abusive and maybe it's the stress of the way they were living but it just wasn't that high life that they kind of thought and the public image was them in you know really nice clothes with nice cars well all of it was kind of just the facade of what was really going on In those times, people were so poor, their lives were drudgery a lot of the time. And somehow, in all of Clyde's escapades, the press discovered that people were enamored with the pair. And the more they jazzed up the stories, the more papers they sold. They definitely made it more dramatic than it was. So more like Hollywood, so that people... Are more interested and so they would sell more papers <laughs> that's awful exactly but i mean they do that nowadays still true good point the tabloids do you know you got the newspapers the tabloids the mm-hmm. the sites the paparazzi all of that going on so i guess that's really not anything new i saw 
an advertisement for a movie and the movie ad was super small at the bottom on this poster and the whole poster was a picture of Bonnie and Clyde and it said, can't remember the headline, but it was like, come see about Bonnie and Clyde. Anyway, it was about the newsreels, you know? So it was like a five, 10 minute, you know how they used to do the newsreels at the beginning of Mm -hmm. the movie. So the whole poster basically was come hear about the new escapades of Bonnie and Clyde. And then the movie was just like this little type at the bottom and come see, (laughs) you know, the Western such and such like at the bottom. So I think that's really telling. I mean, it's a way to escape too for these people. Yes. Living in such a hard time. And here was this pair and they... Of course, making it Hollywood, it seemed like they had all the riches and stuff, I'm sure. Even though we know yes, they didn't. <laughs> but to yes. them, they were like, oh, they're living the good life and they're breaking the law. They're robbing those banks that took all our money during the big market crash. Yeah. And so they kind of were like, yeah, stick it to them. On August 5th, Clyde, Raymond Hamilton, and Ross Dyer were drinking moonshine at a country dance in Stringtown, Oklahoma, when Sheriff C.G. Maxwell and Deputy Eugene C. Moore approached them in the parking lot. Barrow and Hamilton opened fire, killing Moore and gravely wounding Maxwell. This time, Clyde hadn't just been driving the getaway car. He had killed a man. He knew that no matter what, he would probably get the electric chair if they ever caught him. And from here on out, he was more unhinged and shot and kidnapped to get out of any situation. Buck Barrow, Clyde's brother we mentioned earlier, was released from the Texas State Prison on March 23, 1933, having been granted a full pardon by the governor. He quickly joined Clyde, bringing his wife Blanche. Buck says it is to help Clyde change his ways, and he talks until he's blue in the face to get Clyde to stop the criminal life. You know, move to Mexico, anything to avoid the catastrophe that is coming for Bonnie and Clyde. But somehow during all this talk, Clyde talks Buck into going on the road with him for a while. Buck agrees, telling Blanche that it will give him more time to talk Clyde into giving it up. Blanche had just got her husband back and was understandably afraid of being caught with Bonnie and Clyde, but Clyde promised no robberies. He wouldn't get Buck involved in anything shady, and they had enough money to last for a while. They could get a place together, and they would keep all the guns put away. It would be safe, that it would be a good time. Buck was determined to go with Clyde and convinced his wife to go with them. It was that or he said he would go without her. They ended up renting a two-bedroom apartment in Joplin, Missouri for the two couples and W.D. Jones, a gang member that was with them during this time. The guys went out and bought all the bedding, dishes, everything they needed to set up house since the apartment was only partially furnished. They spent time playing cards, doing jigsaw puzzles, that were all the new rage, (laughs) cleaning their guns and resting up. Bonnie wasn't much of a homemaker, so it fell on Blanche to do all the cooking and cleaning. Surprise. (laughs) Yeah, and she didn't think that this was too much fun. And she just wanted to go home before her husband got caught back up in the life of crime. But Bonnie and Clyde hadn't ever lived together without being on the road, and they really enjoyed this time of playing house. Bonnie and Blanche would go out together sometimes and buy things for the apartment, plus costume jewelry or fun little trinkets, clothes, or get to treat themselves to a movie. They had a girl's day, something I'm sure that they never got to do, and it just felt like normal things that people did. Despite Buck's promise of a clean life, there wasn't an endless supply of money. And so at night, the three men would disappear for a few hours at a time. They were later tied to a series of robberies in the area. One night, they robbed a National Guard armory. And this is something actually you see quite a few times in the story is they would hit these armories and they would just bring home just armloads of guns. 
This night, they took their favorites, which was the Browning Automatic Rifle, or BAR. And when they got home after being out all night and Blanche saw what they had done, she was shocked and so angry. I would be too. <laughs> if Marcus came home with an armful of guns after promising <laughs> not to be a criminal, although that's shocking to think of Marcus doing that, but... Uh, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, and it all <laughs> came crashing down on the morning of April 13th. The Missouri State Patrol raided their apartment. The gun battle left W.D. Jones wounded and two officers were killed. Harry McGinnis died at the hospital a few hours later and Wes Harriman bled out at the scene before help could arrive. Apparently, it was very grisly. I'll just leave it at that. It was bad. The gang was able to get away in one car, but not without wounds. In Blanche Barrow's book entitled My Life with Bonnie and Clyde, she described her feelings afterward. Quote, I could see all my hopes and dreams tumbling down around me. My dreams of being with my husband, who I loved more than anyone or anything in the world. My dreams of having a home with him, of hoping he would always be free so we could be happy together. Now that freedom was gone, after three short weeks, it had been taken away from both of us in only a few minutes. At least two men had been killed. We would be hunted for murder. I thought of my dear old dad. What would this do to him when he found out about it? I just knew it would kill him because I knew someday all of us would be torn to bits by machine guns, like the man I had seen outside the garage door and the one who lay so still inside on the floor dead. We would be killed like that. All three men had been hit. A bullet had hit Clyde in one of his shirt buttons, which absorbed most of the impact. Luckily, it was from a small caliber handgun, and the bullet was later pulled out of Clyde's chest by Bonnie with her fingernails and a hairpin. Oh, my. Yeah, so <laughs> apparently just shallow wound. WD had been hit in the side, was in terrible pain and bleeding so much. And when they were not sure if the bullet had gone all the way through his side, Clyde wrapped a small stick with fabric, which probably came from one of the girl's clothes or something, and stuck it in the bullet hole wound in WD's side until it came out the other side. Ah! <laughs> and so they decided, yep, it had gone all the way through. Uh, okay. Oh. 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 Goodness. Clyde the doctor. Yeah. Oh, that is awful. I cannot yeah. imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> Buck had a bruised chest, a spent bullet. So one that was just kind of had hit something else and mm -hmm. ricocheted or something. It had hit him there and apparently it didn't break the skin or anything, but just had really bruised his chest. Mm-hmm. So they roar out of town, back towards Texas as usual, and found a small motor court to stay in. All they could do for WD was a packet of aspirin and some bandages. That poor man. <laughs> goodness. And this happens so many times. They got wounded so many times. Oh, goodness. And it's like, here's some aspirin, buddy. <laughs> there you go. Deal with it. Oh, gosh. Gunshot wound. Let me dig this out with my fingernails and a hairpin or stick a stick through the hole to make sure it went all the way through. Goodness. Stand back. I've got this. <laughs> so they'd left so fast that everything they had, every possession was left back in the Joplin apartment. Cameras, guitar, shoes, guns. They literally had the clothes on their backs. And for Bonnie, that had been a nightgown. Oh, gosh. So another small store was robbed, and they got some money for food and clothes. And the gang was on the run again. And run they did. For two solid weeks, they just drove through state after state, driving, 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 on the run, robbing small businesses, and then running some more. When the police in Joplin went through all of their possessions, they discover undeveloped rolls of film. 
when they had it processed, they discovered things about Bonnie and Clyde that would shape opinions of police and the public alike. Well, Taylor, that's about all the time we have for our episode today. Aw, boo! But tune in next week to find out what lies beneath. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners.